Well, if you haven't turned to your Bibles already, um, turn to Matthew chapter 16. Tonight we begin a four-week series, as um, Wes already told you, that will bring us up to our uh, particularization service, which will take place on October 25th, so I hope you will be a part of that. We're calling this series, as he said, Distinctives, uh, not because we believe we are or that we are trying to be a unique, uh, one-of-a-kind church, uh, but because we believe that there are a few things, um, there are a few things that distinguish us from other churches in our area, uh, things that communicate who we are and why we do what we do, or what we do and why we do what we do, uh, that differ from those around us. And we find that, it, we, we believe that it was going to be helpful. Again, uh, we kind of did that uh, back in 2000, the summer of 2018, as we got ready to plant, and now as we get ready to particularize, we thought it would be a good idea to go back uh, over those a little bit, particularly in light of the fact that um, of the current church culture, uh, as well as the transient nature of churchgoers, um, we just thought it would be good to kind of explain that a little bit. Um, back in, speaking of our planting, back in 2017, when we, were, when we began having the conversations about birthing or planting a new church in Bentonville, a question that never came up was, what kind of church are we going to be? Now, there were a lot of other questions uh, that did, uh, that came up and were asked and answered, like, why and, and how and where and when, but never what kind. And that question never came up because there was an overall commitment to keep things simple by keeping them biblical. We wanted to keep things simple. And so as a result, words like missional and transformational and life-giving and unleashing never came up in any of the conversations. Um, Particular demographic groups were never identified to be target audiences. And the establishment of niche or specialized ministries was never discussed. That didn't mean that there weren't plans for us to make and there weren't particular steps that we had to take in this process, but it did mean that boundaries were set in place. Uh, they were clear and foundational characteristics that we, we believe that we, that we wanted to be said of us. And that were definitely different from the four to five other churches that began in the six months prior to and, and after we planted back in two, September of 2018. We knew, of course, there were a lot of non-Christians in our area who needed Jesus, and of course that is still the case, but we also knew that there were a growing number of Christians in, in churches, that, or, well, a growing number of Christians who were rejecting and leaving mainline, um, liberal mainline, as well as broadly evangelical churches because their churches had rejected and left those uh, churches because, well, they left their churches because their churches had rejected and left basic Christian orthodoxy, to put it simply. And so as a result, we knew that the kind of church we wanted to be was very simply the kind of church that Christ um, was and is building. 
the kind of church that Christ would build and is building. And I believe those characteristics are found here in Matthew chapter 16. And there are five of them that I'd like to walk through. Um, again, they're not in your bulletin, um, but I, I hope you could uh, write these down as you, for those of you that take notes. There are five. Uh, the first is a verbal profession. The second is an apostolic foundation. The third is a covenantal conviction. The fourth is a specific commission. And the last is an explicit assertion. Again, a verbal profession, an apostolic foundation, a covenantal conviction, a specific commission, and an explicit assertion. And I'll hit each of those so that if you didn't get those down, we, uh, that you will have those. But before we do, as is our custom, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, we now come to proclaim your word. And we believe that what you have to say to us through what you have fully and finally spoken is is far more important than anything we have to say. Therefore, we would ask that you would give us ears to hear tonight. We believe your word is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness, and that it will completely equip us for every good work. We also believe that through it you grant us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. So uh, tonight, by your spirit, would you grant us the desire and enable us to receive it with faith and love, Lay it up on our hearts and in our hearts and practice it in our lives. In these moments, use me as you see fit. And it's in the name of Jesus. And for the sake of his church, I ask these things. Amen. And amen. Well, let's begin first with a verbal profession. Now, this passage is very familiar to many of us. It is a transition in the midst of Matthew's gospel, and it's a transition in the gospel because it was a transition in the ministry and life of Jesus. Up to this point, he has been uh, teaching the masses, and now he's about to turn a corner, and he's going to focus on the twelve. So his, his focus of his ministry is going to begin to be more centrally focused rather than wide-ranging. And and where we begin here in 16, he's walking with the 12 and does what he was so uh, prone to do, which was ask a question. And of course, the question that he asks is not only a, an, a question they needed to answer, but it is one that we need to hear and answer as well. Everyone needs to answer this question. And the question was this, matter-of-factly, who do people say the Son of Man is? And the 12 jump in. Right? It, it's, we, don't, we don't know exactly who, but the word there is they, and so they all begin to jump in at one time, several answers, and uh, they say John the Baptist, and others said Elijah, and others said Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, and apparently, as they had been going along, there were some people who had their own opinions about who Jesus was, based upon their own intellect or their own limited knowledge. Uh, others had simply been guessing. Uh, some, of course, were coming up with using their own imaginations and coming up with who, uh, not just who Jesus was, but who they really wanted him to be. And it's, you know as well as I do, it's very common today to hear those same sorts of things. Right? We, we hear Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and Hindus and Jews and Muslims and unfortunately um, many professing Christians in the vis visible church today who are all professing him to be someone other than the Bible has revealed him to be. And again, those, those ideas, that they've come up with them in their own minds based on their own intellect or uh, they have 
uh, their own personal opinions or, again, their imaginations have run away with them and they begin to, to, to define or, or create a Jesus that they, that they want Him to be rather than who He has revealed, been revealed to be. And if I could be so blunt, the stark reality is that any church who professes Him to be other than what the Bible reveals him to be is not a church that Christ builds or is building. And we can say it that way, and I can be that blunt because of the next question and the answers that, that we, we see in the text. The, the next question, of course, is, but who do you say that I am? And the you is plural, and so he's asking all of them, but Peter as we know Peter to be, jumps in to answer the question first and on the behalf of the others, and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Peter, in that statement, was acknowledging that Jesus was the long-awaited anointed one. He was acknowledging that he was the Messiah. He was the one that was in a special relationship with God the Father. He, in fact, was the divine Son he was God incarnate, and he was the one in whom they should place their trust because he was the prophet, he was their prophet, their priest, and their king, who was the only one that had the words of life. He didn't shy away from the answer. The, the answer was verbal, the answer was public. The answer was matter of fact. He didn't hesitate in, in providing the answer. He also didn't qualify it, and he didn't make it palatable for anyone that might have been somewhat uncomfortable with his reply. And this was more than simp uh, a simple verbal uh, or intellectual assent. Look at verse 17. He says, and Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So the Lord was just as quick with his response as Peter was with his, and he, he says, Peter, you're correct. You're right. Blessed are you. You should be happy. The Lord has turned his face toward you, and I know that because you wouldn't have come up with this answer had he not revealed it to you. This was not something that you came up with on your own. Again, this wasn't your own intellect. Really, really, Peter, you're not smart enough to come up with this by yourself. The Father had to reveal it to you. Your, your heart had to be renewed. Your mind had to be rewired. And your life had to be revived because you were spiritually dead. And he says, rejoice, Peter. Rejoice, for the Lord has done this for you. And brothers and sisters, this, I think, very clearly says to us that the type of church Christ builds and is building will not, because it cannot, rely on human wisdom and man-made and pragmatic evangelistic techniques designed to generate a decision. The type of church Christ builds and is building is a church that relies upon the Spirit of God to transform and regenerate hearts, to rewire minds, and to revive lives. 
The Spirit, is, the Spirit must raise people from spiritual death to life because apart from that spiritual regeneration, apart from that divine revelation that is needed, professions will be contrived or manufactured and easily, because of that, easily revoked or denied. And so no other belief and no other description will do. There must be divinely revealed, unashamed, verbal, public profession that Jesus is the Son of the living God. And this is our profession. This is who we profess Jesus to be. But the type of church Christ builds and His building will not only rely upon this verbal profession, there is also an apostolic foundation. Look at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And we're usually quick to dismiss um, the fact that Jesus spoke to Peter. And we do that because of the primary, primarily because of the abuses of the, of the Catholic Church and where they take this. But I think that we have to recognize that Jesus was talking to Peter, and Peter was answering. But insofar as Peter was answering, again, for the group. He's answering on behalf of all of them. Remember, the question was, who do you, plural, say that I am? Peter says, you are the, uh, Christ, the Son of the living God. We believe you are the Christ, and Jesus answers, yes, Peter, God has revealed this to you. God has revealed this to you all. He's revealed this to you all, and this is this, is, this confession, this is your confession. It's the confession of you as apostles, and upon you as a group, and upon this confession, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build it upon you and your profession. Peter, again, was the representative. He was a small stone. He was among other stones who was the foundation upon which the church would be built. And the church, of course, you and I and others that have gone before us and will come um, in the future are, are those living stones upon which they are, uh, they are built. Christ is the cornerstone. And so Jesus was clearly stating that the church was going to be built upon this confession, this apostolic faith and teaching that we heard from Jude, right? Was the faith once for all handed down to the saints. And Paul understood this. That's basically kind of my summary just a second ago. But in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's a great passage. This means the type of church that Christ builds in his building won't be built upon anything new and anything faddish. It's not going to be built upon anything trendy. It's not going to be built upon any new perspective. It's going to be built upon that which has been handed down. 
that which has been handed down. It's going to be built upon the complete and sufficient and authoritative Word of God. The type of church that he builds and is building is going to be historic. It's going to be a part of the larger community of faith. It's not going to be isolated from its past. It's also not going to be isolated from within the present. Its teaching is going to be reliable, not capricious. It's going to maintain its rich heritage because it's going to remain part of something larger than itself. It won't be interested in blazing new trails, but it's going to be more concerned of the well-worn paths of the church fathers that have gone before them. It's not going to sever ties in order to be innovative. And brothers and sisters, this is our foundation. It's who we are. But he doesn't stop there, of course. There's a covenantal conviction. A covenantal conviction. Verse 18 again. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And when Christ said, I will build my church, there were a couple things he was doing. He was expressing responsibility. That's the I. And then he was also expressing ownership, which is the my. I and my. And unfortunately, the strength of this statement is sometimes lost because we've lost the covenantal aspect of this particular verse. And, and what I mean is that this needs to be seen in light of God's eternal plan and purpose because it is a part of something that's larger. In other words, the, the church was not plan B. It's always been that way. Listen to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Verses 12 to 14, where the Lord says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a father, or I'm sorry, and he shall be to me a son. And, and Obviously, we know that the Lord is talking about Solomon, talking to David about Solomon, what Solomon is going to do in reference to building the temple. But we also know, if you remember from our study of Hebrews, that there was something, there was something greater than that going on here. And the writer of Hebrews interprets this for us. And he says in chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, he says, After making purification for sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of his angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So it's Christ, the son of David, the true and greater son who was fulfilling and accomplishing what the Father had promised to do. He was fulfilling that. So his statement, I will build my church, he's saying, I'm, I have come to fulfill what the Father has sent me to do. I'm coming to do what he wanted me to do. I'm gathering a people for myself. I'm building my church. I'm building a house for my name as it always was to be the case. 
And so that was a guarantee of a successful future. It was a guarantee that it would be done as the Lord had said. It was the covenantal love of God and the covenantal purpose of God that that assured them and assured us that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And what an assurance that is. And brothers and sisters, that's our conviction. We hold that covenantal conviction. The fourth characteristic is a specific commission. A specific commission. Look at verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And here we have a, a twofold commission that the Lord gives, or, or mission, because keys do two things. Keys let in and let out, and they keep in and they keep out. And so, first we have the commission of, of what the church is to proclaim. Right? And the door to heaven uh, and the door to the church is only as wide and only as narrow as the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only as wide or narrow as the gospel, as it has been handed down, as we have revealed in, in Scripture. You know, we have been given a message of salvation that is not to be more than or less than the by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone gospel. Never more, never less. We're to proclaim uh, the beauty of His Life, death, and resurrection on behalf of sinners. And the acceptance of those things will determine whether or not someone comes in or remains a part of the kingdom and a part of the church. As a result, the type of church that he builds, there are going to be times that the church that holds to this is going to seem to be legalistic. It's going to be legalistic because it will not be willing to accept anything less than the gospel. But there are times it's also going to be antinomian because there are some that are going to be upset that we don't allow anything more than the gospel. And secondly, we have, we have the commission to protect the church that Christ is building, has built, is building, is one that is willing to take on the responsibility to both permit and prohibit certain behaviors and lifestyles within the church. It's the role to protect. It must take on its authority to oversee doctrine. It must take on the authority to impose discipline where necessary. And I say that because the next time this phrase is used is in two chapters in Matthew 18 when Jesus talks about discipline. And so it's, again, in, in protecting, like proclaiming, as, as we protect, there are some that are going to believe that, that we're legalistic because it actually, you know, the church, they're going to feel a church that practices discipline, a, a church that protects the body will be legalistic because it actually maintains a standard of right and wrong behavior. 
But at the same time, there will be others that believe that it's antinomian. Because that standard for right and wrong behavior is nothing more or less than the Word of God. And brothers and sisters, this is our commission. It is our commission to proclaim and protect. Well, the last characteristic is an explicit assertion. An explicit assertion, and that explicit assertion is that the gospel is absolutely necessary. The gospel is absolutely necessary. Look at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And the question we ask is, why was Jesus so intent on making sure they understood that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and rise again? Why is the gospel necessary? And I think there are three reasons, there are more, but there are three reasons. First, God's counsel and decree ordains it. Again, I've already said the church is not plan B. The gospel has always been a part of God's preordained plan. It's, it's been that way since the foundation of the world. It's been that way since Genesis. It's been that way since the nation of Israel and throughout na- uh, Israel's history. The gospel was God's predetermined plan, so it's therefore a must. Secondly, God's justice demanded it. God could not, being holy, from our study of Leviticus and Hebrews, you know that, that God could not turn a blind eye to sin. It was necessary. He had to be completely just. A price had to be paid. An atoning sacrifice must have been made. And then thirdly, God's grace, mercy, and love motivated it. Right? Being perfectly just, God is also perfectly gracious and merciful and loving. It's at the cross where that justness and that grace and mercy and love meet together because it's upon the cross where Jesus was our substitute who paid that price on our behalf. It was Christ who was our substitute who saved us. It was Christ who willingly, obediently, and graciously did everything that we could not do for ourselves on behalf of us so that we might be forgiven, that we might be redeemed, that we might be washed clean and and sanctified and adopted. It was through Christ that we were saved. And that necessity creates another necessity. And that other necessity is that we must, if the gospel is necessary, then it is necessary for us to trust that it is, in fact, perfect and sufficient for our every need. The gospel is necessary, therefore we must trust that it is perfect and enough. Verse 22 says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter physically pulls Christ aside, grabs, grabs Jesus. I'm sorry, but the audacity, right? I can't get over that. 
every time I read it, he pulls Jesus aside and says, heaven forbid you do this. God forbid that you do what you've just said. Basically looking at the Savior going, this is foolish. He heard that word die and didn't hear anything else about him being raised on the third day. And Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance. You're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Right? That rock who was representing the others and had just made that profession of faith, the one who was one of those stones upon which the church had been built had become a stumbling block. Because he was looking to Jesus, you know, the person of Jesus, but was pushing back on his work. He was admitting who Jesus was, but he, he wasn't okay with the plan because he had his own plan in mind. I don't, basically, I don't like your plan, Jesus. I have a better one. Peter had his own way of thinking, but unfortunately it wasn't God's way of thinking. And so he, he attempts to pull Christ aside and he attempts to persuade him that he, have a, he had a better way and Jesus looks at him and goes, listen, any other way than my way is an evil way. And you're doing nothing other than what Satan tried to do in the garden and tried to get me to bypass the cross. It's not going to happen. Right? Peter needed to adjust he didn't need God to do things his way. His way needed to become what God's way already was. So Peter learns that he couldn't simply profess the person of Christ and maintain his own idea regarding salvation in the church. Peter needed to trust in the sufficiency of both the person and work of Christ. He and what he did is enough, period. And this is our assertion. This is the assertion that we make. Jesus and his work on our behalf, on behalf of sinners, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. I'd like to wrap up with, by sharing something that Harry Reeder, um, pastor at Briarwood Presbyterian in Birmingham, Alabama, shared on a past, pastor's discussion thread this week. Um, he said, and I'm going to read this kind of slowly, just kind of let this sink in here. Whatever becomes, and I've also added a couple things in there for clarity, but Whatever becomes the functional mission of your ministry or church will soon determine its message. Whatever becomes the functional ministry of your uh, mission of your ministry or church will soon determine its message. And then he lists some examples. Building self-esteem 
the therapeutic gospel becomes your message. Securing success in life, the prosperity gospel becomes your message. Striving for social justice, the social gospel becomes your message. And then he says this, we cannot let even the desired outcomes of our mission and message become the mission and message of the church. They are the consequences. The church's mission and message is narrow. It's narrow and focused and results in Christians with lives that have a mission which is broad and comprehensive as we disciple them to observe all that He has commanded. So, he goes on, if we stay on mission and message, the church will produce disciples who are salt and light, who can live the great commandment and love mercy, do justice, and walk humbly with our God. In other words, the consequences will come if we stay focused on our mission and message. And then he finally says, we must speak in the terms the culture understands, not in and on the terms the culture demands. And so, brothers and sisters, as we move toward our particularization in October, four weeks from now, may we commit to making sure that these characteristics from Matthew 16 always describe us as Christ Church Bentonville. And may even our name keep those things in the forefront of our, our eyes and our minds. Because I believe if we do, we'll, we'll refrain from the enormous amount of pressure right now being exerted by the culture to do what they think, to, to be who they think we should be and do what they think we should do. And let me say this, if we don't do what we have been commissioned to do, if we stray from our mission and message, guess what? There is nobody who is going to come behind us and do it. No one outside of the church, right? The world's not going to do it. We must do it. We must refrain and push back. And stay on mission. Stay on mission. Be true to the message that we are to proclaim. And fulfill our ministry that is ours. To always be the, the type of church that Christ builds and is building. May it be so. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, I humbly ask that you would keep Satan from us so that he would not snatch away your word that has been read, 
preached and heard tonight. I ask that you soften our hearts, that we might receive it with faith and love and lay it up in our hearts. I ask that you would water what has been planted so it doesn't dry up. I ask that you remove any cares and concerns of the world that might choke it out. And I ask that you would cause the seeds to germinate and bring forth fruit as we practice it in our lives for your glory, for the sake of Christ, and for our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.